So, what I want to talk about this evening is the way in which we regard practice and the place it has in our life. I don't know you well enough to know how that is for you. So, I'm going to share my own journey, what it has been like for me and how it has shifted and changed. So, when I first started the meditation, learning about the Dhamma, I was 17. And I had this very strong reaction because for me it was like, you know, somebody putting a, a match on a, on a fire that had been doused with kerosene. It was just, I felt ignited. And it wasn't very long. It was like one week after being in the class where I was first hearing about the Dhamma where I had a sense of meditation or spiritual life being central in my life. And about a month into that class, I had this vision of being a nun, which was like atypical. You know, I come from a background where we don't have any framework for nuns. It's just like it's absolutely off. It's not only off the map, it's like on another planet. You know, it's just like there's no framework for it at all. But there was a very clear sense of this image of wanting, of being a nun and, and, and living a life where I was dedicated to the realization of the end of suffering. But I was 17. And, you know, 17-year-old people have, like, a huge list of stuff to sort in terms of relationship stuff and livelihood stuff and family stuff and issues around sexuality and our place in the world and who we are. And I mean, it's a long list. It's the normal thing about what happens when we're that age of trying to figure out who we are and our place in the world. So I felt grateful that, you know, I had 10 years from, or 9 years from that initial sense of this is what I want to do until I actually came to the monastery and then entered the life of a community and lived living as a nun. And my gratitude for that was is, is that there's a kind of lot of growing up that you need to do as a person in order to make good use of a life that's that focused and dedicated without it just being going into strange things like escaping or not dealing with or you know, things like that. So it was fascinating for me because I was at university and I had this very strong aspiration. I wanted the spiritual life to be the central part of my life. And yet I was clear it wasn't yet time for me to go. And so I figured it or featured it or configured it by saying the university was my monastery. And everything that I was doing was part of my monastery. So at that time I was working and I had a boyfriend and I was involved in complicated trying dynamics, trying to sort out stuff with family. and. I let that be my monastery. And so everything that was in my life, I determined to be the field in which growing and learning and unfolding and awakening would take place. And I'm really glad I did that. You know, and I'd even speak about it. So when I was hanging out with friends, I would talk about the university as my monastery. And they understood what I was saying. They understood that, you know, what I meant by that was is, is that, you know, what I was doing was the place where I was focusing mindfulness and concentration and right effort and right action and right speech. I was interested in right livelihood. I was interested in right view, right thought. I was interested in the right determination. And even though at a university context, there's an awful lot of academic pursuit, my interest was to use the academic pursuit in order to really further my own practice. 
And so I spent a year, and then I left and went to France for a while, and then I had some time out, and then I came back. And when I came back, it really was my priority to have what I was studying be the field in which I was developing spiritually. And, you know, this is a typical Aquarian kind of a thing to think, because it's totally idealistic, you know? I was studying, you know, biochemistry and organic chemistry and physics. And, you know, you have to kind of dive into the material in a kind of a way of an abandon until you got familiar with the concepts and the formulas and the ideas to be able to work them well enough to have a framework of how they fit into a larger context. So I felt like I'd failed. You know, I don't remember what year I was at university, and I felt like I'd completely abandoned my aspiration. But, you know, I just completely dropped all of that. But after the university, I had time to go on a three-month retreat, which I'd always wanted to do. And what was fascinating to me was is, is that it, I had the perception that I had failed and that I had actually abandoned all that stuff. But I just actually didn't have a framework that was big enough to see the way in which what I was doing was actually part of a bigger picture. And so it was nice to see these things kind of connect up. And when I came to the monastery, I really had this strong sense of wanting to use the template of my academic studies as a descriptive analysis of how you can practice in the spiritual life. And so I thought of this title because I was studying organic chemistry. It wasn't the only thing, but it was one of the things I thought of. It was the title of a book, Kindness, Clarity, and Insight Through Organic Chemistry, you know, where I actually mapped out how do you study how, do you, or how are you effective in your study? And use the effectiveness of your study not just to be good at the study, but to be good at understanding your mind and your relationship with your heart and your relationship with the world around you. And I never was able to write that book because, you know, when I got to the monastery, the monastery was its own thing. You know, it had its own kind of time, and we didn't have a lot of free time, and it took a lot of adjusting just to get used to the monastery. But what was interesting for me was to see, as a reflective exercise, the way in which one can pick up anything that one is doing with the intention of using it for furthering oneself in the spiritual development especially something like an academic study, right? So when we look at it, we pull it apart, we need mindfulness, okay? So we need to have this ability to look and see what's actually happening at the present moment. And that mindfulness is something that we need to learn how to switch our attention from our academic study to our body and to what's happening around us. Because what tends to happen in any kind of a situation that's intense is we get absorbed into it. And we're not oscillating our attention back and forth with our body. We're absorbed into the study itself, and we totally lose contact with our body. And, you know, students, it's typical. You know, you don't eat, you don't sleep, you haven't gone to the bathroom in five hours, you're bursting, and you have no sense of all of these things, you know, because you're just absorbed into what it is you're doing. So what we need to learn how to do is to focus on the material at hand and bring it back into how is this landing in our body, Where's the tension? Can we relax? Can we learn how to take breaks from the intensity of what we're studying and just bring it to our breath, bring it to our feet, bring it to our posture, 
bring it to the mood or the feeling that we're having. Not, you know, so that we're, we're obsessed with that, but so that we're, we're letting our body be the container through which the mindfulness is strong and the academic study is then picked up in a way which is useful. So there's mindfulness. There's right thought. Now, with right thought, one of the things about that is, is that it has to come from the place that one understands that to practice is not dependent on particular circumstances. It actually, the view is, is, is that practice is happening in the present moment. It's not dependent on conditions being a particular way. And so if we start with that view, then we can say, well, how can I use this next process of study, this next process of inquiry, this next job that I have, as a way to develop the qualities that are needed for mindfulness and concentration and all the factors that are needed in order for the path to unfold. So it starts with right view. And then we have right thought, which is is that how do we incline our mind to thinking in ways that support the view that we have? Now, one of the things that I notice is, is, is that when we study or when we're doing something new, there's a lot of tension involved because we often feel awkward and like we don't understand something or there's exams or there's essays or there's papers or there's presentations. And that tension has an uncomfortable feeling. And so we need to learn how to relax, but we also need to learn how what we do when we feel uncomfortable. What are our strategies? Do we procrastinate? Do we get spaced out in Facebook? Do we disappear into the coffee shop and spend six hours hanging out, talking with people? What do we do? And are these things skillful, unskillful, or a combination of both? And so it's not so much that we bring to what we're doing with a judgment that we say, well, this is bad and this is good, but just an openness of saying, well, when we feel the stress of learning something new and the stress of pressure, what are our coping strategies and are they serving us? If they're not serving us, how can we bring forward a heart of kindness and compassion that recognizes what's not serving and begins to let that go and move towards what is serving. How do we deal with pressure? How do we deal with this stress of learning something new and not knowing yet till we've gotten over that hump where we actually understand the material we're dealing with? How do we deal with, you know, a whole bunch of new people? How do we deal with situations that are unfamiliar? How do we deal with not being where we're used to? And can we use that as part of our practice? Can we actually open to that as, well, what happens in my situation, my heart? What happens to my body when I'm navigating these territories that are unfamiliar? And then there's right effort. So in studying, there's an enormous place where you need to have right effort. Now, right effort is not insane effort. It's right effort. It's balanced effort. And so balanced effort, again, is the ability not to just completely lock into what it is that we need to accomplish, but to remember that we're a person living a life in relationship with the earth and other people as we're doing this, you know? Because it's like, you know, there has got to be some degree of balance that we're navigating as we go through what we have to go through, you know? And there certainly are times when we put a lot of effort into you know, studying or exams or whatever. But it also has to be that we do that where we're sustaining the foundation of our health and our mental well-being so that we can do this over a period of time. And then there's the whole efforts of right speech and precepts and all the rest of that. Now, one of the things that it was really apparent to me is, is that if we're doing well with keeping precepts, it supports concentration. 
And if you're not doing well with keeping precepts, it doesn't support concentration. And so even something as mundane as you know, a worldly accomplishment of wanting to finish one's studies is supported by being able to keep precepts. Because when, you know, we get blasted or we do stuff that we regret, it takes a lot of energy to process it, and that energy is not then available for applying to what is needed in order to learn or to finish tasks or all the rest of that. So right effort is involved with application of how we are applying ourselves to the moment in a larger context, you know. How do we keep precepts together in various different situations? Now, I didn't have an issue with drugs and drink, but I know for some people, sometimes where that comes up is just wanting to be part of a group of people doing stuff, you know? It's like, it's not so much that there's a, that's so much enjoyment of the, of the substance itself as there is just this incredible sense of how nice it is to belong to a group of people, you know, to do things together. And everyone obviously needs to have their own, where their lines are with that, what feels right, what doesn't feel right, what's over the edge, what isn't over the edge, so that they can navigate that. There is a deep longing that we all have to belong, and yet it's also really important to know, you know, what are we selling out when we're belonging, and is what we're selling out something that actually needs not to be sold out, and that's a decision everyone needs to make when stuff like so right view, and then right concentration. So the right concentration, again, it's not about focusing, locking into the subject at hand, but understanding how to still and settle the mind and come back again and again and again to what's happening, and to do that in the context of right view. So right concentration is not only the ability to absorb the mind, it's to absorb the mind in the context of right view, right understanding. And right view has the whole eightfold path as part of its picture that we are part of, you know, not just locking into one element and then diving into it. Now, I find nature supportive. I always have done. And so for me, it was always really balancing for me when I would spend a lot of time doing studies to go out in the woods or to put my body on the earth or to go by the ocean or something like that so that I could unwind and re replenish myself, nourish myself. And everyone needs to find their own things, you know, what works for you, because what works for you might be very different than what works for me, you know. So the concentration is then a, to understand the context of it and also to understand that it isn't so much about absorbing into something as it is the oscillation between that and the ability to know what is happening right now in the present moment. The way the clarity of mind supports right mindfulness to be aware of what we're actually dealing with. And so in the process of all of this, I did learn how to study, and I did learn how to do this effectively. And what was fascinating to me about organic chemistry in particular was is that it, you couldn't just do it through memorization. You needed to learn some things by memory, but you needed to do fundamental principles. You needed to understand relationships. You needed to learn things deductively, and you needed to do things intuitively. And the mixture of all of these things was the mixture of how it was possible to do this well. Because the topic was too vast to try and sort it out with just through memory. There wasn't enough that we could memorize that would be able to make it work. But when I began to see that there were these different components of intelligence that needed to come together in order for it to happen, and I got a feeling for how they all worked together, then there was some sense of confidence that, you know, I could, I could move with it. 
So my interest in writing this book was the sense of it absolutely is the case that you can use an academic discipline as part of your spiritual practice. And you can do that and also do well in your study. You know, you can learn how to study the particular thing you're studying in a way where you become very effective at it. Now, I left the university and I went to the monastery. And when I went to the monastery, it was no longer the world was my monastery. The monastery became my world, you know. So it switched. And everything that was in the world before I was in the monastery was in the world of the monastery. So any stuff that was residue about issues of relationship or issues of sexuality, issues of who I was in the world, my relationships with other people, issues around power, dynamics, issues of all of that stuff, because, you know, wherever you go, there you are. I brought with me the things that were of importance. And so it's absolutely natural that in the monastery, those are the kinds of things that you continue to deal with. And everybody who you've ever found difficult in the whole world are in the monastery. And everybody you've ever loved or thought is absolutely magnificent, they're also in the monastery. So the monastery is not this kind of ideal fantasy world of only loveliness. It's a world of unbelievable challenge that is unimaginable and tremendous potential to work with it in a way which is skillful and furthering and ennobling. You know, it's all there because it's all here. And until we sort it out here, we find it there. And that's nature. That's just absolutely nature. That's the way it works. So I lived in the monastery for a while, and then it became time that I needed to leave the monastery because I wasn't able to make use of the stuff that was arising for me in that context and work with it. So I needed to leave it. But I left it as a nun. And so I left the monastery and I went and lived in Australia. And once again, here I was where I needed to make the world my monastery. Okay? I wasn't living in a monastery. I needed to make the world my monastery, but I was doing it now from the position of being a nun. Okay? And how do you carry that? And, you know, for me there was a whole learning of how to learn how to live with precepts outside of a monastery that was very supportive towards keeping them. You know, so for me, this whole thing has gone back and forth again and again and again, where I take the world to be my monastery, then I enter in the monastery, the monastery becomes my world, I leave the monastery, I go back into the monastery, and then I leave the monastery again. So here I am, I'm a one-person monastery, you know, this is it, this is my monastery, you know. And I was just up in Manitou Springs on Wednesday, and I was speaking to some people at the outside the Mate shop, and that's a whole very, very tight-knit community. And they were just asking some questions, you know, about me and who I was and all the rest of that. And at some point, somebody said, do you live with a large community? And I said, no, I'm a one-person I'm a one person community. And he looked at me and was like, that's crazy. And I thought, well, yeah, sometimes it is crazy. And sometimes it's really peaceful, you know. But understanding, you know, how to keep precepts and what the boundaries are and what it looks like in a context where I'm living as a solitary monastic. So that's been my journey with this. And I share this because my hope is that everyone has their journey. Everyone's got their livelihood. You've got partners. Everyone's got their own aspiration, their own vocation, their own sense of their place in the world. But it is up to you to decide the place that your spiritual practice is in your world. You know, how important is it? It doesn't mean that you have to become a monastic. 
Though if that is a genuine vocation, then I certainly would encourage at least spending some time exploring that. Not necessarily leaving partners or wives or anything like that, but just having, you know, a month or two or three or six months or whatever in a place of intensive practice because it's just really powerful. But Scott, you're going off to graduate school. And, you know, graduate school is notorious for being stressful. You know, that's like graduate school and stress. It's like, you know, the, you hand out the graduate school entry exam or and you hand out the stress. You know, it's like they go together. Because there's a lot of expectations, a lot of pressure, and a lot of a need to fit into a program that may not be easeful for your natural rhythms or your own way, your own body, mind, heart configures things. And yet, if you go into it with the interest to use it for your own furtherment and development, there will be ways in which you'll be able to do that, you know. So you don't need to shelve your practice until graduate school is finished, you know. It can be very much part of it. But obviously, you know, graduate school is not the same as intensive retreat in the sense that your mind is not going to be still and settled and quiet and reflecting on themes of Dhamma in quite the same intensity as it is when you're in a study group or when you are meeting with other people who are speaking on Dhamma. But the capacity to bring mindfulness into the present moment is not dependent on the object of what it is that you're paying attention to. It's transportable, you know, it totally is transportable. And so each of us, wherever we are, you know, needs to figure out, well, how much of this is important to us and how do we want to do this? You know, Luke, you said you wanted to talk to me about actually joining a monastery and I'm happy to speak to you about that at some point and get a sense of where that's coming from in you and what your sense or your interest is and what might be a right fit for that. But one of the things that can happen for people, particularly when they're interested in in exploring that, is they hold up the monastic life as like the ultimate way of practicing. And then there's this split that happens between until I get to the monastery or until I go on the retreat or until I'm hanging out with the master or meditation teacher, then practice is secondary or tertiary. You know, I'm on the B team or the C team. And there's nothing that's more destructive to do than to undermine a person's practice in that way. So I have lived as a monastic for over 22 years now, since 1989, more than that, 23, yeah, a few years, yeah. I see it's powerful, you know, I have a lot of things to say about it that are very valuable, but it's not for everybody. And people can have this really strong idea that they want to be doing that. And for nine million reasons, it doesn't work out. And so if you lock on to the monastic way as the best way, or the, or the way that's the most secure way, or if you have all these ideas that go with the idea of wanting to be a monastic, then it's a huge transition and disappointment both to get there as well as if it doesn't work out. And so what is good, if there is that aspiration, is from the onset not to set it up, not to set yourself up that the best way or the only way of practicing is as a monastic. And to see, you know, if your practice blossoms under those circumstances and what that feels like. And to see that for all kinds of reasons that, I mean, like some of the stories of what happens to people, of why they stay and why they don't stay, it's like, you know, it's amazing what happens in people's lives. You know, we don't know, you know, all of the circumstances that present themselves and 
whether it works or not, you know. But what is important is the aspiration to wake up. That is really important. And no matter where you are in your life, and no matter what interest you have in monastic life, the aspiration to wake up is like one of the most important things any human being can have. You know, it takes you into a journey that allows you to explore, understand, or realize things that have tremendous benefit. So I think all of you know my dad died. Yeah. So he died just about a little over two weeks ago, you know. And, you know, even though for me I'm happy that he has moved on from a body that was full of so much suffering, and, you know, his world had gotten increasingly narrow and was very just happy he's moved on into something that has more opportunity for him. You know, I have my own grieving to do, you know. And, and yet I see that our life is so fragile there is absolutely no certainty from one minute to the next minute, you know, whether we're going to be alive or not. On Thursday, I was in the Garden of the Gods, and I went there because I was feeling really, really sad. And so I went to the Garden of the Gods for the garden to hold me. And after lying down against the rocks for a while, and I sat up and I was there sitting quietly for quite a long while, and I heard some footsteps, so I opened my eyes, and there was a bear. And the bear was like 15 feet away. And I have a history with bears. Quite she a history. She has scars on the back of her head. If you ever wonder what those are, they're bear teeth. My head was in the mouth of a bear. So I have a little bit of history for, with bears. So I saw this bear, and it looked to me like a she-bear, but I'm not that good at telling she-bears and he-bears. And she was pretty big. She wasn't full-grown, but she looked like three-quarters the size full-grown. And we were in a little canyon, and the canyon was maybe this wide apart. And so she saw me, and she was maybe where that blue chair was. And she hesitated when she saw me, and then she started continuing to walk up to me. And I thought, well, you know, she looks, she looks chilled. I feel pretty chilled. You know, I don't feel any worried about this. This is okay. And there's space. So if she wanted to walk past me, she could walk past me. But she didn't walk past me. She walked right up to me. So she came up to like here. You know, she just came right up to me, you know. And I was sitting there looking at her and she wasn't agitated. And I wasn't agitated. And then she she turned her head and she touched my knee. And I don't know why touching my knee caused such a big thing for her. But she touched my knee with her nose and then bolted. And it's like Wow. <laughs> it was a very lovely experience, but it could have been not so lovely an experience. You know, if she came over to me and then decided that something about me was really threatening and that she was going to want to eat me, she could have done that very easily. You know, I was in a canyon. I couldn't have gone very far. You know, it was like she was big. She wasn't little. She was big. And so it's like I left that and I thought, oh, my goodness, this has just happened. You know, and then, and then somebody said to me, well, I'm really glad it worked out so well. You know, and the implications are is, is that it really couldn't have worked out so well. You know, it could have been a really different ending of that story. And from one minute to the next minute, we just absolutely never know. But for me, you know, the gift of the practice is not about being freaked out and trying to prepare for all consequences and, you know, and never risking or never going into the wilderness because you might see something that's scary, but to learn how to relax and trust and to be responsive, you know. 
So if she had been aggressive or whatever, I don't think I would have just sat there quietly. I would have made a noise, you know, or I would have gotten up and, you know, I would have done something. But she seemed totally chilled. And so I was willing to trust that I could just sit there peacefully and let it unfold. And it, it ended up with a good result. But for me, the practice is about understanding where we need to respond and understanding where we need to release our fear and understanding where real safety is found. And it's not found in our ideas and it's not found in in an assurance that that something is going to be there for us tomorrow. It's found in the present moment and how we contact it, how we meet it, and how we respond to it. So maybe that's enough for a reflection for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.